0: Psalms 19 verse 8 tells us that the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And so, if you have your Bible with you today, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, where we're going to begin unpacking how a believing wife contributes to the spread of the gospel by how she responds, interestingly enough, to her own husband. And I apologize for my weak voice, fighting some type of head cold. And then I was singing songs, and uh, I was like, oh, I should cut back, because I have to preach. And then I was thinking of the words of the songs, I can't do that. (laughs) And uh, it reminds me of a t-shirt my grandmother gave me that's, the phraseology's been stuck with me ever since. It's better to burn out for Jesus than uh, rust out for this world, so um, hopefully I don't Hopefully my voice doesn't burn out by the end of this sermon, but we'll see. But anyway, we're going to see how we can actually contribute to the spread of the gospel by how we treat those who are closest to us. Peter's been showing us most recently in this letter how our saved and transformed lives ought to have an evangelistic impact on those who are lost around us as those who have experienced the astounding goodness of God that is found in Christ Jesus in the gospel, then we who have been born again and are now God's children should reflect that same goodness of the Lord towards those who are around us, towards those who have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They should see in our lives a small reflection of that goodness, that the Lord might use by his grace to bring them to faith in Christ Jesus. And so, ever since chapter 2, verse 13, Peter's been showing us what that goodness ought to look like in our everyday relationships, which he summarized for us very well in verse 17, where he states that we ought to be subject, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, and fear God. See, when we show proper subjection to our authorities, no matter who's over us, When we show sincere respect towards everyone, no matter who we might be dealing with. When we show genuine love towards other believers, no matter how difficult they may be at the present. And when we show reverent awe towards God, no matter what He's making us go through in life. When we show enduring goodness like this before the eyes of others, it has an evangelistic impact. We either underline the gospel by how we live, or we undermine it by our daily lives. And so it's critically important that we learn, as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, that we learn how to be subject, and as we're currently learning now, how to honor everyone for the sake and the spread of the gospel. And this gospel advancing and grace adorning respect for everyone begins right at home, as Peter's begun showing us in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, by how we honor our spouses. In verses 1 through 6, Peter outlines for us the Christ-like wife's respectful submission to her husband. And then in verse 7, he details the Christ-like husband's respectful sensitivity to his wife. So we have respectful submission accompanied by respectful sensitivity. And the moment I mention this idea of marriage roles, of men and women fulfilling different responsibilities in marriage, there are doubtless several individuals who might feel offended by that idea right off the bat. You see, many people in our culture think that differences in roles must necessarily mean differences in importance, in skills, or in values. And therefore, to suggest that men and women should occupy different complementary roles in marriage is to suggest, to the modern mind at least, that the Bible must be claiming that there is a difference in value, skill, or importance between men and women. That is not the case. Differences in roles never means differences in values. And and even though we often forget this when it comes to the area of marriage, because this is where Satan is attacking it the most, we know this to be true when it comes to nearly every other sphere in society. So, for example, no one ever suggests that the quarterback that's calling the play is more important than his teammates who are running it. They have different roles, but they are of the same value. No one ever suggests that the director producing a movie is more important than the actors who are actually performing the movie. Different roles, same value. And no one ever suggests that the generals who are calling for a military maneuver are more important than the soldiers who are actually carrying it out. Different roles, same value. We know this is true in larger society, and we know this is true in Scripture. In fact, we see a close parallel, at least, to this idea of complementary roles, even when it comes to the Trinity. Paul himself makes this close parallel in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, when he writes, The head of every man is Christ. Then he says this, The head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So think about that for a moment. That means that the relationship that exists between the wife and her husband is to mirror the relationship that exists between Christ and God the Father. So ask yourself the question this morning, is God the Father superior to God the Son? You can answer that. Okay. <laughs> I was like I was about to switch lessons completely at that point. <laughs> no, they, they are of one essence in the Trinity. And so the distinction in this regard between Christ and the Father is not in terms of essence or in value, but rather it's in terms of function to fulfill a purpose. In order to fulfill the triune God's redemptive plan in this world, Christ submitted to the Father. And so even when you look at God himself, you have two persons who are entirely equal and yet operating in distinct roles of headship and submission in order to carry out a divine mission or purpose. That is exactly what's being called on here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, for husbands and wives, when Peter writes, Likewise, wives, be subject. You have two persons who are entirely equal operating in distinct roles to carry out a divine mission in the sphere of marriage. In order to proclaim the saving excellencies of God to a lost and dying world and support that proclamation through enduring goodness, the wife, First Peter teaches, should honor her husband by showing him respectful submission, and the husband should honor his wife by showing her respectful sensitivity. Well, this morning we're going to start with the wife's role since that is where Peter starts and begins to unpack in verses 1 through 6 what biblical submission looks like for a believing wife. And the five aspects of marital submission that we're going to look at from this passage together is the extent of marital submission there at the beginning of verse 1, then the aim of marital submission at the end of verse 1 into verse 2, Then the foundation of marital submission. In other words, how is a person able to carry this out? That's in verses 3 through 4. Then the illustration of marital submission in verses 5 through 6a. And then finally the guardrails of marital submission in verse 6. So the extent, aim, foundation, illustration, and guardrails of God honoring marital submission for the sake and spread of the gospel, beginning at home. And so with that in mind, let's read 1 Peter chapter 3. starting at verse 1. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words to us. And if you would, please, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> First Peter, chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Peter writes these words for us today. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good and do not fear, Anything that is frightening. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of God whose law we love in contrast to falsehood when we hate and which we hate and abhor let's pray father we thank you so much for your word this morning we thank you for how it not only reminds us of our mission of why we are still here on earth as elect exiles But it shows us practically how to carry that out and how to be about that saving gospel mission each and every day, no matter where we find ourselves. And so, Father, we thank you that you have given us a purpose to absolutely everything in our lives, even how we respond and treat the people that we are closest to, beginning in our own households. Father, I pray that You would capture our hearts with the vision of this passage. That we can be about Your honor and glory and the salvation of the lost even when we are within the four corners of our own home. That everything we do matters for eternity when we do it for the honor and the glory of Christ. So Father, teach us this morning... And help us to understand Your Word so that we might imitate the enduring goodness of Christ which points those who are lost to the Savior. Give us grace, Father, to be changed by Your Word, by Your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So after we're introduced to this idea of a Christ-like wife's respectful submission to her husband, through these four simple introductory words, likewise wives be subject, Peter then outlines for us what exactly that biblical subjection looks like. Because a lot of people have a lot of ideas and a lot of them are wrong. So what does the Bible actually say? What does biblical subjection look like? And he begins by clarifying for us right off the bat the extent of marital submission. That's at the beginning of verse 1. The extent of marital submission. Where Peter writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to who? To your own husbands. Now this should be self-evident. But evidently it's not. The only men. That you are responsible to submit to as the, are those whom God has providentially put in positions of authority over you. Either in government, the workplace, or the church, or the family. See, there's this twisted assumption that has crept into certain spheres of, I guess you could call it conservative Christianity, that thinks that women are to submit to men in general. It doesn't matter who that man is. If you're a woman, you're to submit to that man just because he's a man. That is not biblical, okay? No one ever has the authority over another woman just because he's a man. No one. And that is why Paul here does not say wives submit to men in general. No, neither does he say wives submit to husbands in general, whether yours or someone else's. No, Peter is very precise with his language. Very specific when he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. He's very specific, just like the other biblical writers are, by the way. Just like when Paul says over in Ephesians 5.22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Or again, Titus 2.5, where Paul says that wives are to be submissive to their own husbands so that the word of God may not be reviled each woman to her own husband. So that's the extent of your submission. No more, no less. So ladies, if another man thinks he has authority over you and tries to tell you to do something just because he's a man, you tell him to take a long walk off a short pier. (laughs) And if that's too harsh for you, you can give the old southern insult that I heard down south when I was in South Carolina, well, bless your heart. But you get the point. Don't listen to him. Because the extent of your Christ-like submission as a believing wife is this. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now practically, what does that submission to one's husband look like on a day-to-day basis? Well, the best way that I could summarize it is this. And we took our time when we did this in Colossians. and I think it's important enough to take our time now. What does this look like practically? The best way I could summarize it is this. When there is an irreconcilable difference that occurs in the marriage, the believing wife is to voluntarily submit and defer to the delegated authority and decision of her own husband. That's what biblical submission looks like. And I carefully worded that, so let's, let's break it down slowly. So first, it says, when there is an irreconcilable difference. We need to understand that these commands of headship and submission exist in a broader context about marriage, which is this. Scripture teaches that marriage is ultimately a relationship of teamwork and partnership. So, in a Christ-exalting marriage, the husband and wife will be working together as equal team members, towards a common goal. The husband will be asking for his his wife's opinion, since he loves her, and he recognizes that she is the helper fit for him, sent by God to help him, as Genesis 2.20 says. And the wife will be asking her husband's opinion, since she also loves him, and respects his God's given authority and responsibility of leadership in the house as Ephesians 5.33 teaches. And together, as one team, they'll be working in close agreement and mutual submission together for the glory of God. So that's the way it ought to work most of the time. However, at the same time, there are going to be moments in the marriage where agreements cannot be reached and a decision has to be made by somebody. There are going to be moments of irreconcilable differences. When that happens, God says in Scripture, the believing wife is to voluntarily submit and defer. In other words, the responsibility for the decision, and listen to this, the responsibility for the consequences of that decision, God says falls ultimately on the husband, and the wife is to choose to submit to his decision and its consequences. And notice, she does this, as I said here, voluntarily. As I stated last week, it is ultimately the responsibility of the wife to take the initiative in applying this to her life. It is not ultimately the responsibility of the husbands. Husbands, when it comes to marriage roles, assume that you've probably got a log stuck in your own eye before you start being concerned about the splinter in hers, especially when it comes to marriage roles. You've got enough on your plate. Because submission means that when there is an irreconcilable difference, the believing wife is to voluntarily submit and defer notice to the delegated authority of her own husband. So, first, the husband doesn't have inherent authority, he has delegated authority. Authority, in other words, that that husband loses the moment he asks his wife to step outside of God's commands. And second, as I've already stated, submission means deferring to the decision of your own husband. So that's the extent of marital submission, as best as I could shrink it down in one statement. When there is an irreconcilable difference, the believing wife is to voluntarily submit and to defer to the delegated authority and decision of her husband. Or to put it another way, because this is how it practically works out, there is to be no lasting civil wars in a Christian household. The believing wife is to have a spirit of submission to her husband. And by God's grace, most of the time, that will look like two individuals who are working together as a single team in unit and in close agreement and in mutual submission to one another. In fact, if you want a good picture of what biblical submission in marriage looks like, read Proverbs 31 when you get home. It's a glorious passage. Scripture does not contradict itself. Proverbs 31 is supporting 1 Peter chapter 3. What you see in Proverbs 31 is that the wife is making all of these decisions on her own, even though she's her husband's helper. She does not have to run everything past her husband. Why? Because verse 11 says the heart of her husband trusts in her. He knows that she can make wise and good decisions. And so I'm sure that he asked her opinion on all sorts of things all the time. You read in Proverbs 31 that she owns at least one business. She's buying and selling food, clothing, and real estate. She's a public orator, and she's a faithful teacher of her children and others. And she's actively engaged both inside and outside the home. She has a rich and free life, a life that doesn't conflict with her husband's life, but rather complements it gloriously. And so I want you to see the big picture here. This is what biblical submission in marriage often looks like. It looks like being members of a team, a team composed of two equals in both talent and abilities, a team that is striving side by side to make decisions and accomplish their mission together. But in those occasions where an irreconcilable impasse is reached. Wives are to show the enduring goodness of Christ in those moments for the sake of the gospel by being subject to their own husbands. But why? I mean, what's the purpose of this? Why is there these distinct roles that Scripture lays out? Well, that brings us next to the aim of marital submission, or one of the aims of marital submission, and that is at the end of verse 1 into verse 2 where Peter says this, So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So this is the aim of respectful submission. This is the goal. That even if some husbands do not obey the word, what could be the result? They may be one without a word. This is glorious. I mean, think about the power of, of a Christ-like wife and a Christ-like life. (laughs) I've said it before and I'll say it again. Second only to the word of God itself, the most powerful tool you have in your tool belt for everyday evangelism is the power of your own gospel-transformed life. And we see that demonstrated here in verses 1 through 2. What's being pictured through the wife can be applied to everyone. Everyone. This passage just explodes with gospel hope. Take the hardest person you have ever met, the hardest person you can possibly imagine to the gospel. In this situation, add in a woman who's been gripped by the saving grace of God and who is manifesting it on a day-to-day basis, and anything is possible. That's what Peter's saying. Anything. Peter says, so that even if some do not obey the word. So this is where we're starting from. You could say this is rock bottom, okay? This is the level of hardship and difficulty that many believing wives were having to deal with back then. And can we be honest enough to say that this is the hardship and difficulty that many even believing wives have to face today? Husbands who, for one reason or another, do not obey the word. And that's in the present tense, by the way, which means that this is an ongoing spiritual condition. In other words, this husband being talked about is continually refusing to be persuaded by the truths of God's word in the gospel. He's heard it, he understands it, and he wants nothing to do with it. And he is in a dreadful state, by the way, because we saw back in chapter 2, verse 8, just as it warned us about A man who does that is refusing to align his life to the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And as such, he is in danger of stumbling over Jesus to eternal destruction and being left out of Christ's saving kingdom forever. And the situation here is this husband might know all of those truths and he still doesn't care. He is not changing. He's got too many other things to give his life and his time to other than Jesus. He may have gone to church in the past. He may claim some level of spirituality. He may have heard the gospel and the saving truths of Jesus Christ explained to him many times over, but the reality is he refuses to submit to the truth. He refuses to obey it. He refuses to let it affect his life and his desires and his ambitions at all. He is too busy building his own kingdom to even care about whether he's in Christ's. He's too busy chasing his own desires to care whether he's aligned with Christ's desires or not. So this is, what's talking about here, is this is describing a believing wife in a marital union with a husband whose soul is in that hardened state. This is describing someone in a state of obstinate rejection and apathy towards Christ and the things of God. It's possible some of you might be thinking this morning, you are describing my husband right now. Some of you might be thinking, pastor, you're describing me right now. And if I am, I urge you this morning to turn to Christ. Repent of your sins and trust in Him for the forgiveness and new birth, spiritual life that only He can bring. I urge you to follow Jesus and walk with your wife in the light of life. Don't walk away from her into death and darkness. Our God is a God of great mercy and He will forgive you. He will save you. He will transform you in a way that you can't even believe at this moment if you trust in him. But some of you might be thinking this morning, you're describing my husband right now, so what do I do? I wake up every morning. What I'd love is to be able to spiritually fellowship with this man, and he is far, far from me because he's far from Christ. What do you do when your husband doesn't care? What do you do when he's heard it all? What do you do when he just refuses to listen anymore? And even worse, when he tells you not even to talk to him about it anymore? What do you do when you love Christ and your husband seems to not? Is there any hope left at all? Peter's answer here, yes. Yes, there's hope. There's always hope. Look at what Peter says next. Even husbands who do not obey the word, he says, they may be one. Those are glorious words. If you're in this situation this morning, underline those words. Speak these words to yourself concerning your husband. They may still yet be one over to Christ Jesus and his saving purposes. There is still hope. Even for someone who doesn't want to hear anything more about God and Jesus Christ or the gospel, they can still be one. Now you can sit there and say, I don't understand that. How? I mean, he's heard it all. How do you reach someone who's obstinately refusing to even listen? Well, Peter's answer is you preach a gospel message to them that they cannot ignore. So they don't want to devote themselves to Jesus Christ. How about you preach a gospel of devotion to Jesus Christ by how you live? Look at what Peter says next. He says, even if some do not obey the word, they may be one, how? Without a word by the conduct of their wives. In other words, you can preach, sisters in Christ, you can preach a divinely powerful message about the reality, worth, and importance of Jesus that your husband and anyone can't silence and ignore. And by the way, this goes the exact opposite way too. Husbands, you can preach a message even if your wife doesn't want to hear it. And you preach that message about the worth of Jesus and his saving power by your own life. Though your husband can cut himself off from the word, he cannot cut himself off from the testimony of your own transformed life. You are the motivation, perhaps, that God will use to drive him to greater devotion to Jesus. He can ignore every sermon. He can ignore every verse, every conversation, but he can't ignore you and how you live before him on a daily basis. This is a message you cannot ignore. Now, I need to be clear here. Peter is not saying that someone can be saved apart from the Word of God. That's not what he's saying. Far from it. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by what? The Word of Christ. And Peter's already said back in chapter 1, verse 23, that people are born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Right? So Peter's not contradicting himself between chapters. Peter is, not, Peter is not saying that somehow someone can be saved apart from having the word of God and the gospel being directly shared to them. No, what he's saying here is that someone who's closed to hearing the word of God can become open to hearing the word of God without you ever actually saying a word. (laughs) You can take someone who's closed to hearing the claims of the gospel and you can make them open to hearing the claims of the gospel and you can do it all without ever opening your mouth. And this is important to remember. The key to winning your unsaved, resistant, disinterested spouse over to Christ It's not by harassing them or guilting them or nagging them. That never does any good, okay? As Solomon said over 3,000 years ago, it is better to live in a corner of the household than in a house with a quarrelsome wife. In other words, if you harass and nag your husband continually, you'll either drive him away or you'll drive him crazy. But the one thing that you will not be able to do with a flurry of incessant words is drive him to Christ. Now, yes, absolutely share the truth with him. When able, absolutely. But if he is resistant and obstinate towards hearing the word of God from you, then the key to winning your husband over to a greater devotion to Jesus is not by harassing him, guilting him, or nagging him. The key to winning him over to greater devotion to Jesus Christ is by taking a turn inward, looking at yourself, and committing yourself to live by Christ's power before Him each and every day. Believers, let's not forget this in our day and age. This is where I want to back up and give a general principle here. The greatest tool towards reaching the lost in our day, in our culture, in our nation in which we're living right now, is not the cleverness of our speech. It's going to be the character of our lives. We must never forget this. As we find ourselves living in an increasingly hostile culture here in America, I see a lot of Christians who are right now beginning to increasingly focus on creating apologetical arguments and scholarly institutes as a way to earn the respect and somehow reach our culture in our day. And I need to be clear, those two things that I mentioned aren't bad absolutely know your doctrine absolutely know your arguments and absolutely know how to defend them and be ready to clearly present them even as peter is going to mention later but there's something that comes before all of that we must not be focusing on those things to the neglect of our own lives you know i'll never forget watching a youtube video of two well-known christians who major on presuppositional arguments debating two atheists i thought it was going to be awesome video But it ended up being so sad because those two Christians stood up and with mocking tones said to these two atheists, we already know what you're thinking. You hate God. You're spiritually dead. You're not listening. You are rebels darkened in your understanding and your arguments are laughably inconsistent. And these two Christians actually started getting angry. Their faces turned red and they started mocking these these unbelieving atheists. Now, were the atheist arguments bad and inconsistent? Yeah, they were really bad. But did that justify those two Christians' angry and mocking tones? No. You could see, all, it, you could see it all over their opponent's face when you watch the video. Those, those Christians may have won the battle of that debate, but they lost the war for those atheist souls. Those two atheists would likely never open up and talk to another Christian cordially for the rest of their lives after that treatment. Those two Christians forgot Romans 2.4, that it is the kindness of the Lord that brings us to repentance. And that our ultimate mission is not to win arguments, it is to win souls over to Christ. And the strongest, mightiest, most convincing and irrefutable tool towards that mission is the argument of our lives as we show enduring goodness. We win scoffers over to consider the claims of the gospel by the undeniable argument of our lives. As Peter says in verse 2, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful. And pure conduct, so notice just as I mentioned last week, the evangelistic impact of a believing wife is not simplistically found in her subjection to her husband in and of itself it 's found in her overall enduring goodness of which subjection is only a small part of that 's what Peter says. He starts expanding if you want to reach your unsaved husband and any other lost soul for jesus christ peter says make sure that they can see your respectful and pure conduct now that word respectful is phobos in the greek and it's from the word which we get our word phobia or fear and it's not referring by the way of, uh, of fearing your husband especially since verse six says do not fear anything that is frightening Or, especially verse 14, which is going to teach us to not fear any man. Rather, it's referring to fearing God. As Peter said in chapter 1, verse 17, if we call on God as Father, then we should conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. Now, obviously, fearing God is going to cause you to act respectfully towards your husband and, indeed, honor everyone. But the priority, that, the point that Peter's making here is that when your unsaved husband sees how important and how awesome, not he is, but how much God is to you, he may begin to consider whether God, in fact, should become more important to him. He starts seeing your priority and he starts examining his own priorities. Your reverential awe of God in your daily living. And your God-fearing priorities in life will begin to have an impact on him when he sees your respectful, God-fearing conduct and when he sees your pure conduct. Your pure conduct. And that's pretty straightforward. It means to be clear, clean, uncontaminated in one's devotion and actions. And again, this is not ultimately referring to being pure towards your husband, but rather being pure as a believing wife, towards your God. That's how it's used in 1 Timothy 5.22 when Paul says, don't take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. The picture here is that of a wife who is pure and undivided in her devotion to Jesus Christ above all else. A woman who makes it clear in every decision and every priority, even as a married wife, that Jesus is the Lord of her life and that he always has the final say in everything she says or does. Now again, obviously, being purely devoted to God will lead to being purely and pure and devoted to your husband, but the priority here is that when your husband sees how Jesus is truly the most important person and priority in your life, he'll begin to reconsider whether Jesus should be more of a priority in his own. Your pure devotion to God will begin to have an evangelistic impact on him when he sees your respectful and pure conduct, when he sees Christ. Can I say this just goes right along with what you find out in Scripture regarding what marriage is all about? Marriage is a vessel to produce in us greater devotion to Jesus Christ. And one of the ways you and I spurn our spouses on into loving Jesus more is by loving Jesus more ourselves first. And as we see the devotion of the other spouse, we are challenged to grow ourselves in our love and commitment to Jesus Christ. By God's grace, Peter says here, Even a husband who does not want to obey the word, he may yet be won over to greater devotion to Jesus Christ without a word. And that is the aim of marital submission. It has an evangelistic purpose. I came across a powerful illustration of this truth from the writings of George Mueller, the British evangelist, this week. He tells of a wealthy German whose wife was a devout believer this man who resisted every gospel appeal George Mueller ever gave him. He was a heavy drinker, and he often would spend late nights at the tavern. On those occasions, his wife would send the servants to bed, stay up until he returned, kindly help him into bed, and then retreat to a quiet place to pray for his soul, a fact that the husband knew well and actually even scorned. One night in the tavern, the man said to his cronies, I bet if we go to my house right now, my husband will, my wife will be sitting up, waiting for me. She'll come to the door, give us a royal welcome, and even make supper for us, if I ask her. They were skeptical at first, but decided to go along and see. Sure enough, she came to the door, she received them courteously, and then she kindly agreed to make supper for these drunken men without the slightest trace of resentment. After serving them quietly, she went off to her room to pray for their souls. As soon as she left, one of the men began to condemn the husband. What kind of man are you to treat such a good woman so miserably? The accuser got up without finishing his supper and left the house. Another did the same and another until they had all departed without eating the meal. Within a half hour, the husband became deeply convicted of his own wickedness and especially of his heartless treatment of his wife, he went into his wife's room, asked her to pray for him, repented of his sins and surrendered at last to Jesus Christ. He heard a sermon he couldn't ignore. From that time on, George Mueller records that the husband became a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. He was one without a word. So how about you? Are those who are closest to you in life able to see in you respectful, God-fearing, pure conduct? Can they see the enduring goodness of Christ in you? Maybe you're in the very situation that Peter addressed this morning. You're a believer married to an unbelieving husband, or we could even make it more general than that. You are married to a husband who needs to grow in his devotion to Jesus Christ Who is not living in line with Jesus, His Word, or the things of God? And you're at the end of your rope. You don't know where to turn. I want to encourage you to turn right here to the promise of God's Word they may be one. I encourage you to cast yourself on that divine promise and commit yourself this week to demonstrating what is commanded here a respectful and pure conduct towards God every day before the eyes of those in your household, by the grace of God that is yours in Christ Jesus, renew your commitment before this new week to make Jesus first in every area of your life. Those spiritual compromises that you've been allowing because you thought they were no big deal, those wrong priorities you've been pursuing because you think it didn't have any effect, I call on you this morning to cast them away. Live a markedly different and devoted life before the eyes of your house this week. Get back in the word. Get back in prayer. Get back into worship and service and godly Christian fellowship this week so that you can begin exhibiting that respectful and pure conduct for the sake and spread of the gospel even at home recommit yourself to living a respectful and pure life in the sight of God so that by God's grace perhaps your devotion to Jesus might spread into devotion among your family members for the glory of God now maybe you're not in the wife's position this morning maybe you're in the husband's maybe you've been writing off the reality of Christ and his ability to save your soul And yet this morning, you know in your heart of hearts that Jesus is exactly who he says he is because though you've never noticed it before, you've been seeing it every single day in someone else's life. You've seen his power to save. You've seen his power to transform. You know this morning that he can save you from your sins because you've seen it in the life of someone else. Maybe even the person you wake up next to every single day. I encourage you to turn to Jesus this morning. Confess that you are a sinner and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you and make you brand new. And He will. He will, just as He's promised. This room right here is evidence of that fact. We are sinners, but Christ is a greater Savior. This is the aim of marital submission. This is the aim of enduring goodness. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. We'll have to look at the other aspects of respectful submission next week, but for now, this is the word of God from 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 2, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience and the fervent care of one another until our great Savior returns for his own. To that end, let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us a clear vision this morning from your word. We know what we're to be all about. We're to be about proclaiming your excellencies and goodness towards those who have not yet received it. We're to be about the Great Commission. And Father, now we know how to apply it even to this next week by recommitting ourselves to following closely after Jesus. Father, help us this week to live a God-fearing life. Help us this week to live a pure life. Help us not to excuse or overlook sin. Help us to repent of it this week. And help us, Father, to recommit ourselves to being in your word, to receiving your grace and mercy through prayer, and to be encouraged and built up through godly fellowship. Change us this week so that those who are closest to us may see the power that only comes from Christ. Give us grace. Give us the grace that is ours in Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen.